0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder podcast. My name is Avit Kal, and I talk about bootstrapping, entrepreneurship and building in public. This episode is called Entrepreneurial Strategies and Anti-Patterns for a Calm SaaS Business. First, a word. From our sponsor get a practical nuts and bolts business education in just 15 minutes a day check out the hundred dollar mba show where business school dropout and successful independent entrepreneur omar senham shares real world lessons on starting growing and scaling your own business on the hundred dollar mba show omar shares what he's learned over years of entrepreneurship including building his own SaaS company from the ground up with zero outside funding and a lot of knowledge. So from book reviews to special guests to listener Q&A and more, the $100 MBA show offers lessons you can put to use right away, whether you're an established entrepreneur, a side hustler, or just somebody with a business idea. Subscribe to the $100 MBA show on your favorite podcast app or check out 100mba.net. That's the $100 MBA show on your podcast app or 100mba.net. This episode is also sponsored by Microacquire. Microacquire is the number one startup acquisition marketplace, and it's simply the most efficient way to sell a startup when you're ready to make your next move. And typically, as a first time founder, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into when you go through this process of an acquisition. And MicroAcquire wants to change that and empower founders when they're speaking with the buyers, potential buyers, and then help streamline this whole process of getting acquired for the maximum price without any headaches. To date, MicroAcquire has helped hundreds of startups successfully get acquired, and they've facilitated hundreds of millions in closed deal volume. So if you're thinking about selling a startup, you want to check out MicroAcquire. Go to microacquire.com to learn more. And now... Let's get started. Your approach to building your business will impact every part of your entrepreneurial journey. It's imperative to think about your initial strategic choices before you do anything else, unless you enjoy organizing a massive pivot while dousing the proverbial fires all around you from running your budding business into a very flammable wall. Picking the right approach to starting your SaaS will make the journey much calmer And being able to do that requires you to understand two dimensions of the decisions you have to make. Whatever combination you choose will heavily impact how you start, run, grow, and finance those business endeavors. The two dimensions are intensity of growth and importance of your initial idea. So let's dive deeper into how your growth aspirations and the belief in your own genius business ideas will impact your journey. There's a huge dividing line between SaaS founders, rooted in the expectation of reasonable growth. To some, a business growing 10% yearly is more than enough. Others get nervous if they don't hit a monthly growth of 10%. And that's a huge difference. And it creates a notably different business that operates from wildly divergent assumptions. A calm, slow-growing, and profitable SaaS business that operates in a well-defined niche and intends to stay there is called a micro SaaS. These companies are often called lifestyle businesses as they enable the founder to live a balanced life besides running the business. And this is true for the successful ones at least, when they have established processes and run in a more hands-off mode. But by no means will it ever truly run without the founder or someone doing the work of one, but it can become quite a calm business if you work towards that. And Microsas is focused on creating a high-impact product that solves a critical problem for a validated group of people. There's very little guesswork in this kind of entrepreneurship, and it's also a great candidate for self-funding because of it. There are plenty of bootstrap lifestyle businesses that offer a Microsas product out there in the real world. And let me take a moment to demystify the term lifestyle business here. It has gotten a surprisingly bad rap, and it doesn't deserve it. A lifestyle business is a business that gives its owners a certain degree of freedom that a regular business can't afford them. If you build a lifestyle business, you're creating something that aligns with your overall values and not a time sink to waste 80 hours a week into. For some reason, this really annoys certain investors and high-profile business people. And they have started using lifestyle business as a pejorative term for any business that doesn't aim for total market domination. Because that's what sets Microsoft's businesses apart. They are fine being a big fish in a small pond. If you start a SaaS in a small but well-defined and well-capitalized niche, you can build a business that pays you an extremely comfortable salary without spending 12 hours of your day dreaming up the next scheme to squash the competition and become the world's biggest software business. You don't need to be. You'll still create a valuable asset when you stick to serving and empowering your well-defined audience. It'll be much easier to build a product that works for many people if the group you built it for consists of people with the same challenges and expectations. And while this might create a ceiling for how many customers you can serve and how far you can grow, I think that building such a business is still a meaningful and rewarding way of building wealth. Because here's the thing with the other extreme high growth SaaS businesses. Well, they're expensive to run or rather they're expensive to get going. If you plan to completely dominate a market. And that's an ambition commonly shared by those growth at all costs businesses. You will incur a lot of costs, drowning your competitors ads in a sea of your own ads, well, you will need to funnel substantial amounts of money into the pockets of Google and Facebook and the like. And that's not usually coming from your savings. The more you aim to build the next unicorn, the more likely you are to seek outside funding. And that is money that comes with its own ambitions. The moment you involve an outside investor playing the VC game, where only one in a hundred of portfolio companies is even expected to win it big, you will have to align your own expectations with those of your financial backers. And now that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of us are incredibly driven and they enjoy the hunt for unicorn status, but it won't be a smooth ride. Where a micro SaaS eventually finds its place in the competitive landscape of its field, a high growth SaaS will relentlessly claw and hiss at its competitors fighting for market domination or a monopoly as often desired by proponents of this kind of business. Every single day, you won't find much calmness while riding the proverbial rocket ship. So intending to become the one and only solution in the space has another interesting consequence too. Your business will turn from a specific chef's fillet knife into a Swiss army knife. If you intend to serve everyone, you end up building generic solutions that can do everything. And I have yet to see a hyper growth-based startup that doesn't end up compromising its clear initial vision for something that appeals to more people, because that's where all the growth at all costs mindset ends up pushing your sales and marketing efforts, more people. And you might notice that I'm somewhat biased here. I've worked for both kind of companies, and I've enjoyed either, but I've also faced burnout in both types of businesses. There's always a chance of overdoing it, no matter how calm a business strategy promises to be. But the degree of ownership and control varies significantly between a micro SaaS and a high growth SaaS, and I very much prefer retaining as much choice and decision-making power as possible, while also building a valuable asset of my own at the same time. Of course, there aren't just those two extremes. Growth intensity sits on a sliding scale. You can have a micro that uncovers a massive growth opportunity a few years into its operations and then turns into this high growth rocket ship. Or less likely though, you can imagine an aspiring unicorn just dialing it down and reducing growth expectations and focusing on turning a profit sustainably. It boils down to the expectations of those who fund the business. And if that's just you, you have a choice. Are you hyper ambitious and eager to read about your funding rounds on TechCrunch? Or will you sail through the calmer waters of serving a niche with a laser focused product that allows you to spend your days as you see fit? Ultimately, it's up to you. And the same goes for your approach to the product idea behind your business. Just like with the intensity of growth, how you structure your product and the product discovery process impacts not just your product, but the whole business journey. Ultimately, you have a choice here too. Do you want to build a business because you think you have a great idea? Or do you want to find your idea as you develop your business? The idea first approach is the most common way that SaaS businesses are built at the moment. You see a problem and maybe you experience it yourself. Even you dream up a solution that makes sense to you, you build it, and then you try to find the market to sell it to. Every step along the way runs the risk of being an invalid assumption, but that doesn't stop most founders from going down this route. It's just what everybody does. The idea seeking approach is the exact inverse of this. Instead of putting the idea first, you put it last. It becomes a consequence, a result of a lengthy process. Idea seekers find their future target market, they establish a problem discovery process, find a suitable problem, and explore solutions and ideas with and for their communities. The business idea comes long after the future audience, the problem, and the feasibility of the solution has been validated. And this again is a continuum. You can have a rough idea of what you want to build and then look for opportunities in a community, or you could create something that many communities can use only to niche down later in your journey. It depends on your readiness to shoulder the risk of not validating your assumptions. And when it comes to unvalidated assumptions, you'll find that the idea first businesses are full of them. And sometimes that's all right. Many of the hyper disruptive business ideas of the last few decades were built on wishful thinking. The founders of Uber, they didn't know for sure that people would make the switch from the time honored taxi with all this corruption-ridden medallion shenanigans that you can read about, to Ubers, to cars driven by regular people. Uh, And that makes it a very inaccessible industry, but this app-based transportation service still worked when they saw the signs and made an educated guess. Yet a guess, it remains. Most idea-first businesses don't go out of their way to validate their assumptions before jumping into working on the product. Sometimes that's just not possible because the business is operating in a blue ocean, a space with no competitors, probably because it's a new category that the business just created. But even in red oceans, full of competitors and alternative solutions, you'll find that many idea-first companies started out with them, if we build it, they will come kind of mentality. And that's not surprising, because plenty of founders are attempting to dog food their product. The phrase, Eating your own dog food comes from a TV ad in the seventies where a dog food producer claimed that he fed his product to his own dogs. And the same goes for many idea-first founders. They are their own first customers. And while this makes building the product very easy, after all, you know exactly what you need right when you build it, it also runs the risk of being an audience of one, if you build for others, just like yourself. Then it can be a business, but if you learn that there is no one else out there who needs the same thing you do, you have a validation problem. Now, if you have a solid amount of money in the bank, you can just experiment around, you can build something, see if it sticks and pivot to your next idea. If it doesn't, as long as your bank account doesn't run dry, this might even be expected of you by your potential investors. After all, they likely invested because they believe that you could eventually figure it out, but. What if you don't have a million dollars just waiting to be spent on experiments? What if your hard earned life savings are on the line or you only have whatever is left after the mortgage and the groceries are paid? This is where upfront validation comes in and becomes important. In entrepreneurial strategy terms, this leads us to the idea seeking approach to building a SaaS business. The most important concept here is to look at your initial business idea as an indicator of the market you want to serve. And then you discard the idea immediately. Discard your idea? You heard me right. Idea seekers understand that whatever they believe to be the genius business idea is at best an inkling of something bigger. Just because I want a better way of outlining my blog post doesn't mean a blog outlining browser extension will allow me to run a business from it. Instead, I will have to understand that this idea, all it can do for me right now is to point me towards a potential market bloggers who enjoy outlining. And then instead of building a tool for them and trying to sell it to my fellow writers, I need to take yet another surprising step. I will have to stop talking and just start listening. Personally, I might find the lack of outlining tools to be a problem for me, but is it actually an issue for anyone else? And if it is, do people actively seek solutions or is it just a nuisance for them? Once I learn that nobody cares about my outlining issue, just as much as I do, As an idea seeker, I'm thrilled. I've just invalidated an assumption. I saved myself countless hours of building the wrong solution to the wrong problem. And now I have a chance to look at the actual things people complain about and seek help with. Somewhere in the treasure trove that is people's complaints on social media, a critical problem lurks that will allow me to build something that makes the lives of those who experience this challenge much easier. So much easier that they'll pay me for it. In fact, I start seeing makeshift solutions by all those who run into this issue often that I could turn into a polished product. Validated future audience, validated problem, validated solution. This is the time to formulate my big business idea and starting a business without an idea, it's not a problem. It might actually be the safest way to do it because with this approach, you won't be creating industry disrupting moonshots, super risky stuff. Instead, you'll iterate on something that has a clearly scoped problem and displays a noticeable budget in those who need the solution. Don't sell what you make, make what sells and again, you will find that I'm leaning heavily towards one of these two approaches here. I believe the calmest business you can create combines the idea seeking approach with the Microsoft growth trajectory. Embed yourself in a community that you want to genuinely serve and empower, find their critical problems and build a laser focused solution for that niche. Turn selling that solution into a subscription-based MicrosaS company, and you'll be heading towards financial independence at a sustainable and enjoyable pace. So if this is the happy path, what are the pitfalls and traps that you might encounter? Well, in terms of entrepreneurial strategy, it boils down to several archetypes that you'll be better off avoiding. They are primarily rooted in an incomplete understanding of your target market, a lack of imagination, and a misunderstanding of agency within your prospective customer base. And I'm going to talk about a couple things. And this list is by no means complete, but you'll find the most common misconceptions that SaaS businesses fail for right here. Let's start with the copycat. Some people take the iterate on an existing idea way too literally and effectively clone a business. They copy the landing page, build a perfect mirror image of the product, slap on another name and a logo, and then they believe they are now entitled to a share of the market. Well, that's not going to happen, or at least it won't last for long. The problem with this approach is that you're creating a lossy copy, just like a carbon copy machine would. You replicate the surface, the public facing features and designs, but you have no access to the underlying technology. And I don't mean the server code. I mean the process, the decisions, and the understanding that went into creating the product. If you clone a business, you clone its shell, but you'll never be able to clone its founder's insights, their drive, and their motivation. If you don't have their knowledge your copy will always be incredibly shallow. And without differentiation and a deep understanding of the market that you serve, you will play catch-up forever. Your competitor will always be ahead of you and you'll never build the best-in-class product that your customers actually want and deserve. So avoid copying things outright. There is more value in understanding the reasoning and research that went into creating features and marketing copy than just using it verbatim. Feel free to be inspired by these things, sure, but never integrate them without recontextualizing them to your own situation. Here's a version of the copycat that's a bit meta. Some founders build a business based solely on blueprints that they find in books and guides. While it's generally not the worst idea to follow guidance, sticking to it too much can be a problem. Entrepreneurship is an experiential process. There is no clear way things should be. In the early 2000s, a digital business looked wildly different from a SaaS company today. Even a year ago, a couple months ago, there were various best practices that have changed massively ever since. All advice is anecdotal and needs to be applied with caution. Without the proper context, it might be helpful for some and harmful to others. And there is no right way to build a business. There is only this never ending chain of experiments. If someone promises you a shortfire way to success, be wary. And I'm pretty aware of all the irony here. All this time I've been talking about the benefits of building a calm business, but I want to make this one thing absolutely sure. This is but one of many ways to build a company. It's a great way to build a company, but not the only one. And you won't find guaranteed success with this method or any other method. So there's no silver bullet, just constant exploration and adaptation. If you consider your business an ongoing dialogue with your target market, you'll always be able to respond to these unavoidable changes of an interconnected global marketplace. Stagnation is going to be a problem. And since we're talking about markets, you'll struggle if you're not landing in the Goldilocks zone where the market is just right, not too small, not too big. If you go for an incredibly small niche market, you risk never reaching a meaningful level of revenue. You never convince 100% of your potential customers to buy. So you only ever capture a fraction of the market anyway. And if the market itself couldn't pay you a decent salary from your earnings, even if 100% of the people would pay, a fraction won't either. On the other side of this looms the gigantic market. I don't recommend selling to all software engineers if you're a small indie SaaS business owner. You compete with the likes of Apple, Microsoft, and Google here. They have more money in their weekly ad budget for a single division of their business than you'll ever make in your indie business journey. Competing with these businesses will involve costs that you need massive sums of investor cash to pay for, which will throw off your alignment. The right-sized niche will be big enough to sustain your business and a few competitors, but not too big so that it would attract the industry giants. But even the right-sized niche isn't a guarantee for entrepreneurial success. What good would it do to have a thousand potential customers if none of them are willing to pay for your product? This is why the idea-seeking process involves looking for purchasing agency before the founder commits to building a business. If people have exciting problems, but don't show any signs of wanting to pay for a solution, this is not going to be a fun market to build for and software engineers are an excellent example of this this might be one of the few professions out there that really enjoys building solutions to a problem and as a coder i love to run into challenges because i can solve them using my coding skills i will try to exhaust hours if not days of my time before i ever look at a service to solve this problem for me most of the time this is not a smart choice because the solutions out there are better than anything i could ever build but my willingness to learn and build interesting software prevents me from just buying a solution. Selling to people like me is hard. I'll waste weeks to save a few dollars. Convincing me to use your product will take a lot of effort and a really good product. So if you find that your prospective customers are like me, run, preferably towards customers who have a clear budget for solutions like yours. And how do you find these customers, you ask? Well, you look for existing solutions to their problems, as rudimentary and lacking as they might be, and see who and how many people pay for them already. If you can find a business that can't survive because people buy that product, then you have a shot. So look for evidence of budget and purchasing agency. So let's talk about churn here. There are two kinds of churn, preventable churn and structural churn. Preventable churn involves every kind of cancellation that a business decision could have stopped from happening. Customers didn't get the right value from your service, or they found something better somewhere else. That's something you could have done differently. But structural churn is something particularly new founders often don't see until it's too late. It's the kind of churn that happens because of more significant movements in the industry that they choose to serve, but can do nothing about Imagine you're building a SaaS solution for up-and-coming actors to find their first gigs in the movie industry. There's a clear happy path churn here that you can't avoid when your wannabe actor actually succeeds and becomes an actor that gets signed by an agent. Well, they won't need your business anymore. Or you elevated them into a new career category. So they churn, but in a good way. But there's a hidden kind of structural churn here too. Every month, a certain percentage of actors-to-be decides to call it quits and gets a real job. They hang up their actor hat and venture out to interview for other occupations. They cancel because they don't need your sass anymore as well. Both are kinds of churn that you can't prevent, success or failure, and it's pretty likely that the actors calling it quits outnumber the ones that make it big in the industry, and that's a statistically traceable part of reality for every sector. Structural churn like this can be measured and should definitely be part of your decision-making process on whether to take a shot at solving problems in this particular industry or not. Mind you, there will always be unexpected things that will cause your customers to cancel. Sudden policy shifts or technological breakthroughs, they could trigger mass cancellations that you might struggle to prevent. But structural churn is visible from miles away, so make sure you look out for it. Now combining all the frameworks that we've looked into, here's a quick checklist to base your own strategy on. A calm business, a calm SaaS business, should have a clear growth intensity goal. Preferably, growth is sustainable and aligned with the financial and operational goals of the founders. And if you intend to self-fund the business, a revenue-centric subscription business model is chosen to sit at the core of your business. You'll make all product decisions in accordance with this selected model. A calm SaaS business should also be based on a conscious idea relevance choice, preferably. A comp founder defers their business idea until they have validated the market they want to serve, the criticality of the problem they've discovered, and the feasibility of the solution that they envision. Any product work waits until these validation steps have been taken. And the best way of staying in touch with their target market is to join their communities. Embedding yourself amongst those who, who you plan to serve and empower will give you a constant stream of insights, preferences, and themes that ensure your assumptions are always close to the perceived reality of your prospects. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Father podcast. You can find me on Twitter at avidkahl a r v i d k a h l. You find my books here to sold and the Embedded Entrepreneur, and my Twitter course. Find your following there as well. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.